Hi friends, welcome to the Mobile Bev Pros podcast, a podcast dedicated to providing mobile bar professionals with the information they need to succeed. I'm your host and fellow mobile bar owner, Sarah Murphy. Each episode, I'll be bringing you interviews, knowledge, anecdotes, or opinions with the goal of assisting you in building a profitable, sustainable, and scalable mobile bar business that will support the lifestyle you dream of. I'm excited for today's episode, so let's get started. All right. After a long hiatus, we are kicking off season three of the Mobile Bev Pros podcast today with Bob Christian of I Got Milk Designs and Coaching. Bob is also um, a new educator on the Mobile Bev Pros um, membership site. I'm super excited to talk to you today, Bob, because today we're talking about creating a build plan for your mobile bar build. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You have previously been an educator, not only on mobile bet pro sites, but you did an entire workshop for us at the, the SWIG virtual conference that we did in February. It was one of the more popular sessions that we did. It's clear that there's a, a, a lot of gray area, or maybe maybe there's information overload, or maybe there's a lack of information on this type of thing. So I love the fact that what we're talking about is specific to our industry, specific to our niche, and you've built a number of mobile food and mobile bar rigs already. So you've learned a ton through actual experience. And, and so when I asked you to, to do this podcast and to tell us or share with the community kind of some, some things that you've learned that could facilitate their journey, the number one thing that came to you immediately was to create a plan. And so from your own personal experience, I'm guessing that's something that you see most often be an issue? Uh, I do. And uh, I think it's because I recognize because I made the same mistakes when I did my first bar. I just, um, for me, it was the shotgun effect. I just shot it out there and I was just all over the place. And I think I, well, I know I cost myself a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of tearing out to redo. And so uh, that was the reason for this. You just kind of come up with a planning how to plan this out to make it methodical, less frustration, save money, and get your build up and running sooner than later and make it money. Yeah. Yeah. That's the name of the game here, right? Because it's, it's a bit of a, a trade-off for all of us when we decide whether or not we're going to DIY our build or whether we're going to hire someone to build. But even when we hire someone to build, there's a potential and a great potential that the people that are local may have never done a build like this before. So the skill sets they have um, and the projects that they've that they've done in the past may have some similarities, but they aren't necessarily going to parallel. And the structure may need to be a little bit different than the projects they've worked on in the past. And so whether or not you're DIYing or you're hiring someone else to do the build, the plan should be the, the same process for whichever direction that you go. But money is always a, a factor in there too. So if you're going to DIY, having a plan is going to shorten that build process. And, and if you're hiring somebody, while it may not shorten the build process because they would have already been faster had you done it yourself, it, it still might save money. And the end result will likely be of better quality because we've, we've all heard those stories if you've been in the industry any amount of time. I have two of those stories myself, my own builds, <laughs> where you hire someone, you pay them a lot of money, and then the product that you get is either less uh, desirable than you would have hoped or more expensive than you had planned for. So whether you're a DIYer or you're hiring someone uh, to do your build, I think the information you're going to share today is going to be amazing and, and, and right, on, uh, right on topic. 
So what is the, what is the first phase of, of the structure and the, the planning phase that, that you've laid out? You know, and it, and it just simply is that it's just a planning phase. And what I've been contacted before is, is what is, what do you want your bill to do? And uh, to, to me, it's also important that who is my target audience? Because ultimately what I build, I want it to be appealing to them. And in my mind, I want people to look, and this is how I thought about my personal trailer was, I want to go over there and I want to see what that trailer is about. And I want to hang out there and just feel good about that, that trailer. So, but to do that, you really need to kind of figure out what your mission is and kind of translate that vision into your trailer. And it, it takes some time. So we try and short circuit that a lot of times. And so I, you know, I, I have a list of questions. I ask people, uh, okay, this is your vision. Instagram and Pinterest are perfect. Um, but, you know, there's a list of questions that you should ask yourself because you're talking about the structure of your trailer and you're talking about the layout of your trailer and the decorating of your trailer. So, and all of that's just got to come together to make your vision. And for me, is it's start with a rough sketch of what I want my trailer to look like. And then, and that's all sides of your trailer. I want the front to look like this. I want the sides to look like this. And then translate that onto the trailer. So if you already have your trailer, I recommend going out there with a Sharpie and we'll just mark it all over it and uh, or blue taping your trailer and say, okay, I want a service opening right here. And I want a window right here. And then I want you to take that vision inside and tape it out on the floor and uh, say, okay, I, I really wanted a bar this size and I want a refrigerator, but it's not going to fit. I've got to be able to move around in this trailer. And then once you do that, you know, I've even heard of people in myself. I've also taken cardboard boxes and made shelves, made cabinets, and just placed them in there and said, okay, this is workable. This is my, my, what I call the golden triangle. I can get to everything I need when all hell breaks loose and the, and the crush comes, I can work it and I can be most efficient that way. So that's just kind of the basics. And it, it, uh, I encourage people to take the time to do that and don't be afraid to, to adjust. I say pictures are king too, especially when you're working with somebody. Uh, you have a partner, especially spouses or significant other. Post those pictures on the wall and say, this is what we agreed upon. And this is what we're driving towards right here. Because your blue paint might be different in my head than my blue paint. And your bar top, if there's not a picture of it, I may have something totally different. And that just causes a lot of frustration. And it's supposed to be fun. I 100% agree. And I resonate really hard with that example, even because my husband and I did our first horse trailer built uh, together. Well, we tried. And then we hired someone else to do it. And we had done all the pinning. And we had gone online and we had like picked out different stains and colors. And then he went to Home Depot and must have gotten lost or forgot what we had agreed on. But while he was in the aisle and he had seen like 40 other colors, he's like, oh, this, this color is going to look great. I'm going to love this color. And we get it back and he starts to put it on. And I was like, that, 
that's red. That's not blonde. That's red. And he's like, yeah, but I, I just, I kind of like the way it pulls out. I'm like, but that's not what we agree on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I definitely, I feel that. And, and especially if you have a partner utilizing some sort of visual vision board are great, especially if it's mm-hmm. like something tangible and not just on a computer screen. It's also important, I think, to recognize the colors on the screen is not always the same. I have a story about that uh, as well. We painted our house what I thought was going to be a beautiful gray. And well, we had painters when we first bought it. We, we came in and uh, why is why are these walls baby blue? Like that uh, <laughs> gray yeah, is very yeah. fickle. Gray yeah. is very fickle. Sometimes it's greener. Sometimes it's bluer. Sometimes it's pinker. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, this is very blue. Um, so I, 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 love, I love that advice uh, for sure. I also really love your golden triangle. And that is something that I had never coined a term for. But when I was building with my husband, our tiny house, he's a chef and um, worked commercially in kitchens for a really long time. And so when we taped it all out on the floor as to where all the appliances needed to go, he literally kind of stood and, and started kind of reaching for things, pretending to make something in his head. And as he was reaching for things, I would know, okay, that's where he's reaching for the stove and that's where he's reaching for the sink. And so and it ended up being very much a triangle shape, but I had never really thought of it that way. Uh, so mm-hmm. if, if you're building a bar and you have bartending experience, not everybody does and that's okay. But if you have bartending experience, getting behind the bar and pretending to make a cocktail and pretending to make a drink and where you'd grab for things, because oftentimes, and this is something that, I don't know that everybody knows this, but when I was getting my master's at Cornell, I had to take a restaurant design course. And the woman who was teaching the restaurant design course said that most designers of commercial and industrial kitchen settings have never worked in a kitchen before. And Mm. most that are designing bars have never worked in a bar before, which is why sometimes um, you'll go in and you'll you'll get a restaurant job and you're like, why is the sink all the way down there? Like it meets code, (laughs) but it's not like conducive to actually working. And so I highly recommend when you're designing your bar, if you don't have bartending experience, it's an hour of a bartender's time. You know, it's not going to be very expensive to have them come over and kind of tell you like how the, how to work a space and how mm-hmm. during high volume you would work a space. I oftentimes get people um, that ask, you know, like, what do you think about drop-in sinks? And I'll tell you what I, uh, I think about drop-in sinks. It's fine if you serve the same kind of event all the time, but if you have variety of events. And so for example, I do, you know, beer and wine events, I do cocktail events, I do coffee events, espresso events. And if I had a giant drop in sink in the middle of my counter, right in front of my serving window, that would not work out for espresso events at all. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about the variety of events that you're going to have and the type of services you're going to offer before building that stuff in is I think really, really helpful in allowing your space to be flexible. And speaking of flexibility, I just saw your sketches for uh, a trailer that you're building right now. And you have this, I just love this, this idea, the, the, the bar inside that you would work from also is removable as like a satellite option, which that's so flexible. Right. And, and I, Mm -hmm. one example of this is, you know, someone hired my bar for an event. They didn't buy a tent or rent a tent. And we just at that time as we, we had first started, we had happened to have one of our interior bars that we hadn't built out the counters in our camper yet. And so we were actually using it in the camper as the <laughs> interior counter. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened it rained and we were able to be like, hey, no worries. We actually have a bar that we can like 
look outside. Uh, we don't do that anymore because now we have counters. But when I saw that, I'm like, that's so smart design wise, because then if it does rain, you're not left without a bar, you mm-hmm. know, and you don't have the guests don't necessarily have to go out in the rain. Um, they can use that kind of in, in that it's literally the bar. You just kind of roll it out the back. So smart. And, 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 and that is a direct result of kind of planning for the purpose, which, mm-hmm. which I love very creative. Yeah, to that point, I'm actually doing a coffee trailer right now. And one of the smart things I think the lady did was she went to coffee school and and knew exactly what she wanted. She knew the equipment she was going to need. She knew the setup. And yeah, I think, you know, these people will talk to you about anything. You can go to your local coffee shop or your local bartender and sit up there. They'll love to talk to you about how they do business and works what works for them. So it's... Um, you know, it's it's just taking that extra step to make sure it's it's a good setup for you, but it's adaptable to multiple different things that you may encounter. Yeah, love that. So, is there anything about the, anything else about the planning phase that you want to cover? Well, there's just so many questions to ask yourself. One of the big things is how how many service windows do I need? You know, do I want to take an order here and, and give it out this direction? You know, you need to think about that the size of your service opening, or are you trying to peer through this little window? To me, when I look at a trail, I just want it to be appealing. And I, I recently saw a picture of a service window that was the window, the countertop was five feet off the ground. That was the countertop for it. And I was like, I, I told this lady, I, I don't even feel like I want to go over there and order anything out of there. So it's uh, that once again, it comes down to knowing your customer base and how that kind of flows in with your bar and that type of thing. You need to talk about your electricity. What kind of equipment am I going to have in here? And how am I going to push it? And um, because you can only, you're bound by the plug at your venue. So if you're, if it's only a 15 amp or 20 amp plug, you're not going to power that trailer up real well. If you know, you've got a freezer, refrigerator, that type of thing. So I always recommend is to try and if you have to upgrade one thing right off the bat, splurge a little more up front is electricity and uh, make it a good sound adaptable system. And there's ways to save energy like in lighting so you can transfer that energy over to your bigger items. And it's if you're going to put a 240 volt or 220 volt espresso machine in your in your trailer then you need you need the amps to push it so electrical is something i always say you may want to just upgrade right away you you, know, you can do without some other stuff but you may want to look at that and one of the things it's it's paramount and i see a lot of on the mobile bev pro site is people ask well do i need a triple sink and, and you know i you need to call your health department i call it run and stealth if you're going to run stealth, then you can put in there whatever you want. But if you're running by code, then you need to go to them. And I, I have seen this a lot. People don't want to know. It's, you know what, you don't, you don't want to be having an event and have the chance of being shut down. If you need to have a license and you need to have certain things in your trailer to make it right, then go ahead and do it up front. Get that out front. Uh, right in the planning stage. You don't want those surprises. And on that note, I think it's really important for people to, in their planning stage, do the research of calling their health department 
and then figuring out what they what they want to do, right? And so people always ask the, the same question, low-hanging fruit, because they see it in some and not in others. And when you're working in a horse trailer, for example, you only have so much space. There's not very mm-hmm. big, right? And they're hoping the answer is no, because they're like, I would love that extra space for other things. And the, the, the answer one is dependent on where you're located. Although if you are ever to use it in a public capacity, almost every of the 50 states that I know of is going to require some sort of sanitary precautions. And th- mm-hmm. Three compartment sinks are part of that. So you can plan for that in a lot of, a lot of places by having mobile stations that maybe sit outside the, the, the horse trailer that you just kind of put in and then you take out. And, but again, that's part of the planning stage because I have oftentimes gotten people on the phone that are like, I had my trailer built out and now I'm trying to do a festival or I'm trying to do a farmer's market and I don't have a three compartment sink or a hand sink in here. How do I go about retrofitting this into my Mm -hmm. horse trailer? Well, you're probably not going to be able to do it very easily. That's the, Mm -hmm. that's the problem. Retrofitting a small space like that with, with those things is going to be difficult and expensive. And you've already just spent it to be built out the way that you wanted it. Right. And, uh, and so now, do you have to do farmer's markets and flea markets and all of those things? No, public events have a different set of regulations in most cases than, than private events. And so that's, again, a great, a great thing to point out that as part of the planning stage, not only do you want to know what you want to serve, you really want to identify where you want to serve. What kind of events are you striving for? You know, if I get people on a call and they're like, we want to do like festivals and weddings. And I was, you know, my answer there is that those are two business models. You can do both. But you have to plan for them separately because festivals is is much different beast than doing kind of 150 people weddings. So you, you can't you can't go in wanting to 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 do it all, unfortunately. Yeah. So the, I mean, those are some of the questions, and I, I call them: Are they really? There's a service open. I got to decide where that. I got to decide on cabinetry, but you also have to take time to decide on your decor and your lighting. And do you want under shelf lighting? Do you want Bar lighting? Do you want you know twelve volt leads outside so you can plug in your awnings? So I encourage people to have like a, a floor plan and then an electrical plan. Okay, this is where I want my receptacles. This is where I'd like a twelve volt PowerPoint because I use Square, you know, where I need my phone. And I need to be able to plug in. So you have your your layout, much like a blueprint, but I also have electrical blueprint that says, okay, this is where I need all this stuff. And once again, talk to your health department, this coffee shop, it really needs by code has to have a certain amount of light over the washing sinks and the work area. So, you know, I have to make sure that she has enough, what they call it candle power over those work areas to meet code. So uh, you just don't want surprises. Yeah. And for for anyone listening, who's already overwhelmed because I'm halfway there and and I've already kind of been through this list before. Bob actually does offer strategy sessions and coaching to help walk people through these questions. So he sent me over a few of the questions that he walks through just so I have like talking points for this podcast. But I, I honestly, I'm one of those people, like I'd prefer to have someone walk me through this and then help me create a plan. Even if I was to go to a, a builder with it and not do it myself, imagine, I'm just imagining how like the sigh of relief a builder would have if you were to hand them a plan that has already kind of worked through all of these questions. And so I mean, we'll, I will link all Bob's contact information in the in the notes of this podcast. But if if you're feeling overwhelmed, like I I know that there are questions I'm not asking, and I really should probably should. Bob can walk you through these, and so I highly recommend taking advantage of that. If uh, if if you're as overwhelmed as I 
personally uh, was and even am looking at all, all these questions. <laughs> so after the planning stage, which is vast, and this is, I mean, potentially even before you've purchased your trailer, potentially, what comes next? Once you have your good solid plan, then we start demolition phase. And um, that's when personally, what I call, I restore trailers. So I'm going to take it all the way down to the frame and address any normal rust and that type of thing. You know, one of the, it's funny because one of the questions I usually hear from people is, oh, the floor is new and, uh, or the floor is sound. And my first question to them is, what's been hauled around in that trailer? If it's a stock trailer, a horse trailer, that type of thing, take it out. But it's good. But I'm telling you in, in the middle of a Georgia summer, it's, it's going to come back to get you. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, at that point, we're going to remove the, all the flooring, the, the wood's going to come out. I would leave any wiring that's in there. You know, if the wiring is sound, the lights work, I'm not going to tear any of that out, but you want to take it all the way down, strip the trailer out, address your problems right up front, your rust, anything sketchy in the frame and, um, and then work your way back up. It deal with it. I, I tell people deal with the problems right off the bat. Don't try and hide them. We all try and do it. I over the years of eh, I'll get to that. No, just deal with it because you know you're you're investing. My my thought is I'm investing a lot of time and money into this product right here, and uh, I want it to be as best and as durable and as nice looking as I can and. You know what? It's in Murphy's Law. If you if you bypass something, then if you're Bob Christian, it's going to come back and get you at the worst possible moment, probably. Yeah, um, for Sarah Murphy, it does too. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and I, I've learned, you know, if I have a good plan that I can cut all my openings from my lighting, I can cut all the openings from my pass through the, you know, the power coming in. At that point, I'm going to take it off and get the the wheels looked at, the bearings either replaced or serviced. I mean, it's just such a cheap fix. You're talking a couple hundred bucks and that's a lot of money to some of us, but for that mindset of just, okay, I know the running gear on this trailer is fine. And, and then I'm just building up. So, you know, that's, that's basically it. Where I'm stripping this trailer down to nothing and uh, taking care of the rust, any problems and getting it ready to build it back up. And would you say the demo phase for the average builder that they underestimate what they're going to find during the demo phase? <laughs> I would. I it and it really to me the demolition comes down to uh, if you've done a, a really good job of picking out a sound trailer. If you haven't picked out a sound trailer, you are looking at hours and hours of bodywork. Uh, rust mitigation, cutting walls out of your trailer, and uh, you know I've turned trailers away just say I don't I don't feel comfortable working on that. The frame rails completely rusted through. Now that can be mitigated, and it can. And but, but at what the, expense? Yeah, it's extremely expensive to get a welder to to uh, to come out and take care of that. So you know if you if you could do your due diligence to get a good trailer, pay a little more up front, then you're not paying down the road <laughs> when you're trying yeah. to mi mitigate these issues. 
Yeah. And there, there, I mean, obviously we have a couple of popular types of, of mobile bars that we see in the industry, horse trailers being one of them, because you, you can pretty much see it horse trailer on any given back road anywhere in the country in various states of disrepair. Right. And, and I have been the person that purchased one on a whim. I probably had too many margaritas on a Friday. And by Sunday (laughs) I was driving out to the countryside, picking up a bright yellow trailer and it looked perfectly fine for me. Like, what do I know about horse trailers? A lot had been covered up with paint. A lot had been covered up by trim, not even like intentionally necessary, but there are certain, I mean, the trim exists in, especially that front paint part yeah, um, on, yeah. the, on the nose. Um, it's hard to see what's going on down behind <laughs> that. And so I spent a lot of money making a lot of trailer mistakes, but, the, but the, this also applies to campers because I've seen a lot of people that kind of, they get these vintage trailers and they think, ah, it's going to cut out a hole and repaint it my colors and then what they fail to realize is that one the campers that were built in the vintage era that we all love to the shape of they were built to be disposable uh, for lack of a better term not the airstreams I, I discount airstreams from this conversation but they were hoping people would buy a new one as their family grew or they hoped that people would upgrade after a few years in these campers they also were expected to like you'd spend a couple summers in it but or you know weekends every summer but it would live in your garage for most of it and a lot of times they didn't they left they were left in the driveway uncovered um, and the the glue and the sealant that kind of holds the the skins together dries out every I don't know, five to 10 years. And then water starts to leak in and like, where does it go? But like back behind the walls and in (laughs) the insulation. And so you can't see that. And you might be able to see some remnants of it, you know, like water staining on the ceiling, always look underneath a camper because that's also where it's going to go is down around the the corners at the bottom. So they, they start the renovations and then they start like cutting out holes or like even pulling away, like just the countertops and stuff. And it just starts to crumble or they see mold or, you know, Mm -hmm. like you don't want to work in a space that has mold period. So if you're going to commit to buying a vintage trailer, do everyone a favor and commit to taking it down to the studs. Cause almost, I can almost promise you there will be pieces of wood that need to be replaced. There's going to be rotten pieces, mold, water damage. It's going to be soft in spaces. And again, if you're going to build a business, I'm assuming you're going to want to make some decent money and rent this thing out. If you want to build a six-figure business and your billboard is a trailer, then you don't want it to be falling apart in season two because that's Mm -hmm. going to be more expensive because, and, and there are some mobile bars out there that can attest to this. If, and as you were saying, like, it's going to be more expensive if you're doing these fixes after you've already put in the countertops and you've already done the paint and the wallpaper and it looks all pretty. So the the things that we're going over here, obviously we reference horse trailers a lot because they're, I think, prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, but similar issues during the demo phase for campers, especially, I think a lot of people assume it's going to be one amount of time and then they get in there and they're like, oh my gosh, this is a much bigger job um, than yeah. I thought it would be. Well, and additionally, one thing I found with campers is that they go for a premium right now, especially. And uh, but to find parts like parts like trim, uh, molded trim, the same siding with the same bends is you you have to be lucky to find that stuff. So 
it's like an old vintage car. You're just going to, you're going to pay for the repairs for that thing to get it back to a light as is trailer. So it's, uh, that's something to think about with those. I love those things and I I have one in my mind and I'm going to build it one day, (laughs) but it's you, you, yeah, they're, they're a different beast. Well, you've said it before. It's like, you're driving down the road at 80 miles an hour with this little mobile home behind you. And if it's not put back together correctly, yeah, it could get pretty ugly. Worst case scenario, it comes apart. Least case scenario, it, it starts to leak because it's, it's, it's racking or something like that. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. You were talking about the skin of campers and I, I actually have an intimate knowledge of this. There was a, uh, a point in which I, was thinking at the beginning of COVID of selling my camper and building myself another one. Cause you know, you build the one and then you're like, Oh, but when I get the money, I'm going to, I'm going to build this other perfect one. Cause I didn't know mm-hmm. what I know now. And they wanted to, the, the people who were thinking about purchasing it, they wanted to remove my logo from the side, which is totally fine. Except for the fact that the way that it was done, they would have had to repair the paint they would have had to redo the whole the whole paint scheme and so they're like well can we just buy new skins and i was like well let me see what that would look like for you and the 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 particular pattern that i had that with the breaks that were Mm -hmm. i think every like five inches or something is considered a vintage pattern and those are really hard to find not only like are they expensive if you can find them but they're really hard to find and so you can special order them but then it takes like 12 weeks or some other mm-hmm. kind of crazy thing and so I, I have started to see some campers they'll remove the vintage stuff and they'll put up just like flat siding it's um it's not even mm-hmm. like aluminum any longer it's like some new fiber board or something like mm-hmm. that uh, so we, we are seeing some creative solutions to that challenge but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, some people really want that look of the vintage siding and, yeah. uh, which is cool. I love that look too. You just gotta, gotta, again, you gotta commit to the fact that it's a little bit more challenging oh, yeah. and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So demo phase, what comes next? Well, we, then we kind of start putting this thing back together again and we go ahead and get it painted, primed and painted. Uh, that's when the caulking comes in. And this is where I, I tell people and certain from my, I've learned a long time ago, cheap in gets cheap out. And when you're talking about something that's you're trying to make a living with or a part-time business, uh, go high quality with your primer, your paints, your caulking, because it, you know, I've said it before, it increases longevity and the look of your trailer. And you know what, if you, if somewhere down the road, you're going to try and resell, then it's going to help in that department and certainly in the maintenance, that type of thing. So I always push, go high end with those types of materials. Everybody wants to reach for that $2 tube of caulk at Home Depot, but I'm, I'm telling you, eight or nine, $10 tube of caulk that is silicone and flows into the voids instead of just sitting on top, it, it pays dividends. So. Yeah. Um, And it's important, I think, with silicone. uh, What an amazing invention. It has more flex than a lot of other cocks. And so a lot of a lot of times people don't realize or maybe they do, but they don't really think about it is that whether it's a camper, whether it's a horse trailer or any other type of rig that's got it's going to like twist as it's kind of going over mm -hmm. all these bumps and you're parking it or you're moving it over gravel or grass or whatever. 
And while the first year or two, you're not really necessarily going to have too much of a problem, but it, it, you're going to start to see separation. And the, the silicone I have found just to be a little bit more forgiving, long lasting, and it looks better longer. So yeah, you're spending yeah. four times, five times more on the tubes of cock, but it, 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 gives, so, it gives that much back. Yeah, it does. And one thing I figured out a long time ago, it's like, whether you want to call it a pro tip or whatever, is I always prime first and get a good base for the silicone to go in. But I use gray silicone everywhere and it's paintable. That way I can see where I've missed. So I have generally a white or an off-colored primer with gray silicone. I can see every crack I've missed because every bow in the trailer gets caught. It just makes for a, a nicer, more complete look. I feel like. So yeah. It's so uh yeah. So the part of that in the reconstruction phase is we do all that, start to paint, go high-end paint, whether it's uh even if you're painting wood on the inside, exterior paints, high-end. Uh, I'm not plugging Sherwin Williams, but I think their materials just they're excellent. And um, once they get to know you, you'll get the 50% discount. And it's, uh, I, I just enjoy their stuff. They, if I have a question, they can answer it. So, awesome. yeah, so th- I did not yeah. know they offered a 50% discount. That's amazing. Yeah. Once you show up a couple of times, they, they want you back. <laughs> so. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right. So we have demoed, we are reconstructing. Is there anything other than kind of caulk, which I think is an important part of the reconstruction phase that you think people maybe don't spend enough time on or rush through that makes a big difference in the end? Uh, Yeah. I mean, preparation is king when you're coming to this, especially when you're talking about paint. We want to get color on that beast very quickly. We want to see something getting done because up to this point, it's just, it's hard work. It's a lot of grinding, sanding, that type of thing. We want to get color on the trailer. So for instance, I took a, a trailer over yesterday to the power wash. And uh, the day before I had sprayed everything down with the OSFO, which is a rust killer. I took it over there, swabbed the whole thing down with uh, TSP, trisodium phosphate, and then took a brush and the power washer to it. Before it gets painted, it's going to get completely wiped down with mineral spirits. And then the primer goes on. Just paying attention to details, the stickers that are on these stinking trailers. I despise them. You can spend an hour trying to get all that goo off of there, but it pays dividends when you see that paint job. So definitely love that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard horror stories of people who get their their trailer painted even by a professional and it hasn't even been a year and it's starting to bubble or Mm -hmm. chip away. And gosh, what a nightmare to like be a bar who invested all of this money into a bar and you've got all these beautiful pictures that you've done style shoots for. And then you show up on site and the the paint is starting to peel away Uh, and the thing is brand new. Right. So that's, that's some great advice about all that prep. So after we start the build, which I think is probably the second favorite Stage um, mm-hmm. of a, a bar being built and the experience of a, a bar owner. What comes after this part? I call it the installation phase, and that's when I start to put all the the niceties in. And I have a system that I work from the roof down. 
So any ceiling that's going to go in there, I'm going to do it first because I work my way down. All the garbage is down and it just leaves an open canvas for me. Uh, So I'll go from the ceiling, then I'll go shelving. I'll put any countertops and the cabinets and that type of stuff goes in. If I have to put the floor in, I will put the subfloor in first, which generally for me is either three quarter inch pressure treated plywood or back to the inch and a half. Uh, lumber. And then I'll put the flooring in last. Sometimes it's a little harder, more cuts, but I don't have to worry about damaging it by dragging refrigerators in there or that type of thing. So, so there's just little tricks like that. You know, if you can just take your time and, and think it through. And there may be some cases where people just, well, I can't do it in that order. Well, that's what the planning comes in to say, Hey, I've got to do this first and then I can go to this. And you know, I have, I've had a lot of times where I've just caught myself sitting. I have an old rocking chair in my garage, just sitting in my rocking chair, staring at the trailer and thinking through things. And I've walked away from trailers for a day or two until I figured it out in my head and came back. There is this method, and I don't know the name of the method, and I don't know the name of the book, but I'm going to I'm going to recount this ambiguous story anyways, because what you're talking about, there's this uh, the movie with Tom Hanks where he's flying the, the airplane. And he ends up landing in like the harbor in New York. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, they did an interview with the dude who actually landed that plane. And they, they're like, how did you, how did you do that? Like that, that shouldn't have even been possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't really know how he did it, but like they talked to his co-pilot. Of course, they talked to all of these and and he had this process of doing this thing and what, and some people are going to listen to this are going to resonate as some, as something that they actively do. And there are going to be other people that are like, oh, I never do that. But what he did, almost to the point of annoyance to anyone who would fly with him, is that, you know, you'd go to the hotel because that's how they do it. And then they're on a little shuttle all together, the co-pilot and the flight attendants. And the pilot would be um, quizzing the, uh, the co-pilot. Well, if this is what happens, what would you do? And most time, the co-pilots who hadn't flown with them before are always like, that's why we have computers. You know what I mean? Like the computers mm-hmm. do the thing. And he's like, no, pretend that you don't have a computer. Pretend like, what would you do? And he like makes them play out these scenarios in their head. And so when it came down to this crisis, computers down, he reverted back in his head to when he used to fly this like little toy airplane. I say toy, but he used to fly this like small single seater or something. And he remembered the muscle memory of how to make it work. And the process, they've like done studies that show that like the process of just sitting with an idea or a concept and working through the steps in your head is one, it, it builds the flexibility for like different things that might happen. You can prepare for them, even if they never happen, if they mm-hmm. do happen, you're prepared. But then also when it comes to planning for things, you have a better ability to avoid issues because mm-hmm. you've already played it over in your head and you know that that's something that could, could be a potentiality. And so, you know, I love the idea of that, even though, you know, you've already done your planning phase and you're three phases past that, you're, you're still constantly like reassessing as things kind of play out where you're almost putting yourself back in that planning stage. You know, you're mm-hmm. thinking through things and trying to predict, you know, things that might go wrong or would this look better over here? But also not saying I'm married to this original plan till the end of time, it's flexible and malleable and you can adjust as things arise without landing uh, your bar in the, the New York Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sullyberg. Sullenberg? 
Sully Sullenberg. Sully something. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, I read about it in some business book because that's what I read. Mm-hmm. But I that has always stuck with me as something that I, before every event, the last thing I do, I'll shut my door when I after I've packed for an event and I will play back in my head. All right, I'm going to arrive on site. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pull out this. And almost every time I'm like, oh, shoot, I forgot to pack this thing. Mm, yeah. um, and so it saves me so much time and also angst by just playing the process through. And I do that sometimes when I'm designing bars too, not only just like pretending to make a cocktail, but also like the whole nine yards. So like, I'm going to get to an event and I'm going to have all of these booze boxes. Where am I going to store them? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so I actually made the the decision when I redid the counters in my camper that I would leave the one of the counters completely empty below it. And no cupboards, no nothing, because that's where I'm going to put all the extra boxes of alcohol and Mm -hmm. all of the, because oftentimes you unpack stuff and then you've got these boxes or like these crates like lying around, there'd be no attractive place to put them. So I specific, and that was part of me just visualizing the whole setup phase, not even Mm -hmm. just like, okay, I'm ready to serve. What does that look like? But like I get there and I'm loading these cases and I have coolers of ice and like, where does all of that go? Yeah. It's uh, playing it through your mind is really helpful. It's, um, I think it makes you more productive in certain instances. You know, you just sit back and play it. Okay. Yeah, I'm good with that. It's nothing surprising. Just kind of go forward. So, And so, I, in my opinion, I think the installation phase is probably the most exciting part for a bar owner because that's when you get to see the pretty light fixtures go up and you get to mm-hmm. see the, the windows go in and... Uh, the counters. What is your what is your favorite countertop to work with? Oh golly, you know what? It it's I'm doing one now. The, this coffee shop going up to New York is a beach theme, and so this is it. It sounds simple, but it's very exciting to me for some reason. But um, I want the countertops to look like the tops of surfboards, and um, I'm actually put pinstriping in. Uh, resin pen striping in these countertops so you know you kind of get that vibe of uh, like a woody surfboard I grew up on beaches so those big old wood surfboards really excite me but so this one's going to have pen stripes in it much like a surfboard but I've done live edge and that was fun I've done a poured resin I wanted I had a lady one time that wanted stainless steel with oak trim and I did stainless steel with oak trim because she was going to do some food prep on on some of them, so it's it. You don't don't have a favorite. No, I think this surfboard one's going to be my favorite. I, I'm excited. But you're not using actual surfboards, right? What are you using for the base? No, I have a lumber company here that I go get uh, hand sewn uh, hard pine and oak, and nice. so it. When you look at it, it's going to look like a woody surfboard with uh, probably two to three inch wide strips. And around the whole outside is going to be this dark, deep blue pinstripe embedded into the wood. And then we're going to go with polyurethane over it, five coats of polyurethane. So she's going to have one, one, two, five bar tops. <laughs> so, right. yeah, yes. inside that's bigger, and out. That's a bigger, uh, bigger rig then. It's not a two horse, is it? It's got to be a little um, larger Well, it's a two horse with a walk around up front and a tack room. So it's 13 feet long. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. So she's got yeah. room for, for all the things in there. Yeah. So we were able to put a little kitchen in there up up in the nose where her three wash basin sink is going to go to hide it. Uh, so nice. she'll have a little tiny kitchen up there. So, but it's, 
I think that's going to be my favorite. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> to date, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll make it work. It'll be good. So. And so for people listening, they're probably one, either just morbidly curious as to how to plan a mobile bar, but probably more so the listeners are either going to be in the stage where they are building their own or they are looking for someone to build their trailer. And I've, I've already mentioned that you do uh, kind of con- strategy sessions coaching for those that want to DIY, which I think is amazing because mm-hmm. if you are DIYing, but you've never done one before, the mere fact that you can call someone and be like, Hey, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with can save so much time and money. Like you even said it yourself, you ended up having to redo things on your, your first bar mm-hmm. and that's expensive both time and money wise. But if, if people want to buy a bar that you have built, you work a little bit differently than a lot of builders. You you don't necessarily take orders for bars like a standard mobile bar builder that you find. T- tell tell us how what does it look like to work with I Got Milk? Yeah, I Got Milk. What it what really drives me and what speaks to me is I get these visions in my head and uh, of a trailer and uh, like the one that will be, be advertised very soon, Champ, old style, tall tires, that type of thing. So what I do is I come up with a plan. in in my own head of what I want this trailer to accomplish. But what I think is different with mine, I am really into using reclaimed old hardwoods and old metals mixed with quality materials where, you know, it's most needed. So I take a lot of time just to design these trailers in my vision. And now uh, because I was a bar owner. Well, mine was more of a coffee shop is what it turned out to be. I know it has to be functional. So I'm taking the beauty of it, what I think is I find beautiful, and marrying it with it's got to be functional and it's got to be easy for you to pull around. So once I advertise this trail, it'll be out there and I'm just going to go ahead with the build. It'll list the colors. Uh, like you said, this one will have a, a satellite bar for scaled events, the sink, that type of thing. If you'd like that to be your bar, if you're interested, you can get a hold of me. And uh, at certain times during the build, you can make certain changes, Uh, you know, because if I'm into the, I'm putting this bar back together and you want to change the paint, I can't do that. That's going to be a huge cost uh, overrun for me and uh, a lot of extra work. So depending on when you decide, hey, I, I really like that bar. I think I'd like it to be mine, then you can make certain changes along the way. And you know what? Some of the changes may incur a cost increase. Some may decrease depending on what you want. So that's my model now is, I think it's pretty simple. I'm going to build what I like, <laughs> what I want. And uh, if you want in then and want changes made, then yeah, call me. We, we can do that. I love this model. I love this model. And I want everyone who's, who's listening, building their own business. Uh, to take note that you have entered a market into building that has a model, a standard model that you can probably reach out to any other mobile bar builder and they have a process. And, it, and what do you want? And how many you know serving windows? And what paint? And what is the trailer that you're building? And you go from there, right? But you've decided that you, that doesn't make you happy working that way. The things about the business that light you up is the design process and the finding the perfect trailer and and knowing that there's a X amount of repair that needs to be done, but then you, you kind of build it its own personality. And then you recognize that you can't just collect these things. You, people have to buy them in or, or you just have a giant lot of uh, <laughs> bars yeah. in your house, but you enjoy building them and you enjoy bringing your own visions to life. 
and uh, people can choose to to buy them. And and that is literally what art is. You know what I mean? You can commission mm-hmm. art, but most of the time you're just, you're p- purchasing something else that someone created because it was beautiful in their own head. And so I think it's, I think it's uh, a good reminder to all of us that we can do the same thing that other people in our industry are doing, but we get to do it the way we want to do it. Mm-hmm. We get to do, to create a business that works for us, that, that not we don't necessarily work for, and that keeps all the pieces that you love and gets rid of all the pieces that that don't that you don't love, right? Mm-hmm. And and having tried once uh, upon a time to create a design based business, I'm very bad at that. You know, like someone's like, "I want a website," <laughs> and and you're like, "Okay, well, what what do you want it to look like?" And then they're like, "I don't I don't quite know, but like maybe this or maybe that." And like then mm-hmm. two days later, they're like, "I was thinking about this, and I think I actually wanted to do this." And oh my gosh, how challenging is that, right? Um, and Hell so yeah. if that doesn't light you up, then don't do it that way. And so mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's amazing. So uh, for anyone who who's listening, you currently have one that you're in the process of, and they can probably find information for that on your Instagram or yep. they can reach out to you directly. And otherwise, we're going to have all of your contact information again in the, the show notes for anybody that might want to hire you to help them with their DIY build or see what the... one you know, Maybe they're listening to this many months from now and, and Champ has already been sold, but you'll likely have a new project going and uh, they can reach out and contact you about that one. So this has been super, super helpful. I truly appreciate your time. And I look forward to continuing to see the resources and the education that you contribute to the community and the membership. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for uh, having me. It's been fun. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. And that wraps up today's episode. I hope it was valuable. I would love to hear from you what you thought. You can drop me a line at hello at mobilebevpros.com or find me on Instagram at mobilebevpros. If you're looking for more valuable mobile bar related content, we have a website full of it. You can find us at www.mobilebevpros.com. And I'd love to see you in our Facebook community also by the name of, you guessed it, Mobile Bev Pros. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, cheers.